you, Kevin. And uh, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. It's good to see you. I do need to make one quick announcement. I talked about this last week as well, but per our procedure, we have to say this two weeks in a row, that one week from today, next Sunday, after both services, we're going to vote on an addition to our Constitution. Uh, this will be a single paragraph that states our position on marriage, that we believe marriage is between one man and one woman. So we're voting to incorporate that in our Constitution. We're just living in a time where it's necessary to do that. So we're planning on voting on that paragraph uh, next Sunday. Hope you can be here to help us out with that. So I quickly learned um, that working with junior high boys can be dangerous. Back in my 20s, for several summers, I used to be a counselor at Camp Cowan. Ironically, it's not named after me or my family. It's a slightly different spelling, but it's called Camp Cowan. It's a Baptist camp back there. And uh, it was my very first summer being a counselor. So all these junior high boys, 12 to 14 years old, come filing into the cabin. And I was working with a guy who was a veteran, a one-year veteran. And we sit down, those boys are coming in, and, and we really need to give them a speech to kind of establish, hey, we're here, we want you to have fun. Just remember that we're here to be the, to look after you, to be the authority here in the cabin. Well, that speech didn't go exactly like I think it should have. And we really didn't assert ourselves as being in charge, and it showed as the week went on. These boys were awful. Uh, they were constantly beating each other. They were, they were uh, I, I've told this story before, they were eating nerd ropes and washing them down with Pepsi like at 10, 11 o'clock at night, which is not conducive to good sleep. Yeah, they, were, they weren't respecting each other's stuff. They weren't respecting our stuff. It was, they were very hard to control in a nutshell. And something I learned that week was that where there's not discipline, bad things are going to follow. Now, that was true among those boys, but it's true just in a general sense. And to be honest, who really likes to be disciplined? Who would consider that to be a pleasant process? If you've been disciplined by parents, you never look forward to that, that scolding or the, the timeout or the spanking. I can remember being in department stores countless times with my mother. Then she'd look at me and she'd say, when we get home... You're getting a spanking. And I remember, man, I'd delay that trip home. I'd get home, I'd, I'd try to disguise books in the backs of my, back of my pants. You know, you'd do anything to avoid that discipline. And yet the scriptures tell us that where there's no discipline, there's no love. So the question for us this morning is, how do I endure God's discipline? How do I endure God's discipline? It's not... It's not an easy process receiving the discipline of God. At the same time, it's a very necessary process. The passage I want to look at this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. It's a longer passage. I want to go through the entire passage when I read it right now. And as I'm reading it, look for the three different images that come up. First, you'll see the, in the image of a race being ran with endurance. Then you'll see the image of God being a disciplining father. And then you'll finally close with an image of the results of someone who does not choose to endure God's discipline. So if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. 
is Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 17. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. And have you forgotten this? My son, do not regard lightly the, the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You may be seated. We continue to go through this very, very important book of Hebrews, a, a, a book that shows us the break between the old covenant and the new covenant, the way that ancient Judaism approached God and the way that we now approach God living in this new covenant. We've been talking a lot about faith. And this morning, because of the faith of those forefathers, a challenge is being issued to the audience of the author of Hebrews. He's challenging them, based on what you saw last week among that great cloud of witnesses, some of whom didn't taste death, but many of whom endured very painful deaths. The text says that some of them were sawn in two. In light of all that, he's now encouraging them to live out a difficult walk. And again, this theme continues. It's throughout the entire book, don't stop believing. You're going to face hardship. You're going to face trials. And in light of those three images that we saw, I'd like to approach the text this way. First, we'll talk about how do I run the race. There was a lot of talk in those first two verses about running the race with endurance. And then secondly, why endure the discipline? The discipline of God is, 
is multifaceted that I'll talk about in that point. And then finally, how do I avoid foolishness? There is a foolish route that people can take when it comes to their faith. So let's talk about those three things. We'll start off with this first point. How do I run the race? How do I run this race that's been set before me? This comes from verse 1. Notice what it says in the beginning. Uh, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those that have become before us, those heroes in the faith of chapter 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So the first thing we must do is reject sources of sin. It talks about that sin that clings so closely. It says to get rid of it. Wow, if you could just snap your fingers and make it go away, wouldn't that be great? Unfortunately, it rarely works that way. We're in this process together with the Holy Spirit in removing and distancing ourselves from sin. One of my favorite professors in seminary, a guy by the name of Dr. John Hanna, whenever he would teach class, he would shoot so straight with us. It was painfully straight with us sometimes in his own personal struggles. I'll never get one time when he said, men, I've had to change. It's funny, it was a class of men and women. He said, I've had to start changing the route that I drive to uh, the seminary in the morning. He said, because see, when I drive to the seminary, there's this one big billboard that I pass every morning. And it's of a woman who's not wearing much. And he said, I've decided I can't drive past that billboard anymore. It's just doing things in my mind. And he said, frankly, I'm tired of it. So I'm taking a longer route to work in the morning. I so respect that man for his honesty with us and his willingness to do something about it. So where do you struggle? If it's social media, man, get off of it. Just check it every now and again. Or just use it for for business purposes or whatever it may be. Is it your phone? Is it jealousy? Then a question to ask yourself that also comes up in the text is what is distancing me from Christ? What is distancing me from Christ? We see this in verse 2. It says, look at Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who with the joy that was set before and endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is your first inclination when you look to Jesus? What is your first inclination when you wake up in the morning? Is it to check the headlines? Is it to look at your social media status? How many likes did I get yesterday? Or is it to pray? I struggle with that. Sometimes I do better than others. Is something keeping you from Christ? And it's not always a bad thing. More on that in a moment. So to run a race, it's going to require discipline. And oftentimes we need discipline to come from outside of ourselves. In other words, we need a discipliner. As much as we would like to admit it. Someone who loves and cares enough about us that they're willing to put us through difficulty to prevent us from going around down a road that in the long run is only going to bring us harm. And we have such a discipliner. We see it in verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, like I said at the beginning, no one would say that, man, I just really enjoy punishment. And it's not necessarily even punishment. The discipline that comes from God is, is something else. Why endure the discipline? And I want to say at the outset that God's discipline shouldn't necessarily be considered punishment. There's oftentimes God brings very difficult circumstances to people, and it's not because they're deserving of punishment. It's because he's taking them deeper into himself. There's probably no greater example in the scriptures than the man of Job that was called blameless and upright, and yet Satan was allowed to sift him like wheat. So we're not necessarily talking about a punitive sort of discipline here. It's not that God is trying to punish you and get you for your sins. It's because he's growing you up and maturing you into somebody that you would never have been otherwise. So we'll talk about these five reasons for discipline as we get them in the text. And they're usually painful circumstances that we go through. I want to share one quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So why endure discipline? First of all, because it removes burdens. Because it removes burdens. You know, again, uh, going back to verse 1, there's two things it brings up. It says we must get rid, first of all, of every weight and the sin that clings so closely. You know, we've got stuff hanging on us that prevents us from growing. You know, if you see a runner, or you've been a runner, chances are before the race you would wear a warm-up suit. And you'd wear that while you were practicing, while you were getting ready, while you were getting warmed up. But when it came time to run the race, you had to shed the warm-up suit. Maybe you've had to run a race, and in order to do that, you had to shed weight. It's because you want to get rid of anything that's keeping you from doing your absolute best. And that's what the text is talking about here. It's not necessarily something that's sinful. Boy, I love fishing. But I tell you what. If I'm constantly choosing to go fishing, uh, putting it before my wife, before my family, before my God, before my church, now fishing has become this encumbrance. Fill in the blank. Is something you enjoy become an ultimate thing to you? And it also says to get rid of sin. We've talked about this a little bit. I think one of the deepest hidden sins that's so hard for us to sort out is the, the sin of pride. I know this in my own life. I saw this come to the surface whenever I uh, left engineering and I went to work for the seminary to, to help pay for school. And I remember I got a job moving furniture. I was uh, working for school moving furniture. And uh, I remember I was about to move a computer and I had to unplug it first. And I was about to unplug, and somebody came up to me and said, oh, no, 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 no. See, we don't unplug the computers. We've got people that, that do that. Now, I had just come from a job where I was designing power systems on military aircraft. Now, all of a sudden, I can't even unplug a computer. And I remember my heart sank, and I, I didn't realize how much of my sort of identity and pride I had taken in being an, an engineer. Pride is so just lying below the surface, it can be difficult to detect. 
And it's something that sometimes God will take away. And though it may be painful for a moment, it's ultimately for our good. He's removing idols that sift their way in there. That's one reason for discipline and, and suffering. And then secondly, we endure discipline because it's Christ-like. If you look at verse 3, it says, Think of him who endured such opposition against himself by sinners, so that you may not grow weary in your souls and give up. Christ never gave in. Being tortured by those, mocked by people as he was hanging on a cross for us, he could have wiped them out with the mere thought of it. He never gave in. He never gave in to anger. He was obedient to death. So what does giving up look like in our day and age? I think it could mean not giving in to the culture. We've got a culture out there that's telling you, you know what, just sleep with whoever you want to whenever you want to. We have a culture that tells us you have to accept every way of living as equal. You have to tolerate all these things. And if you say that there's objective truth, for example, the scriptures, you are an intolerant person. Christ endured all these things. It is to be like Christ to endure the discipline of this Christian life, not giving in to the culture, not giving up on your faith because it's not giving you all the answers you would like it to. And then third, endure discipline because it makes sense of suffering. It makes sense of suffering. This is hard. And I do not want to be trite in, in speaking about this incredibly difficult truth. Because I know that many of you are suffering severely. You've shared it with me. And if you think you're the only one, believe me, you're not. We've got a church full of sufferers here and now for all kinds of reasons. And I've spoken with many of you uh, about this. Um, there's something that was said by a Dutch priest, a guy by the name of Thomas Akempis. You may or may not have heard of him. He was born in the uh, 1300s, died in the 1400s. He wrote something about suffering that I think is just genius. He said this, You are not truly patient if you will only endure what you think fit, and only from those whom you like. A truly patient man does not consider by whom he is tried, whether by his superior, his equal, or his inferior, whether by a good and holy man or by a perverse and wicked person. But however great or frequent the trial that besets him, and by whatever agency it comes, he accepts it gladly as from the hand of God and counts it all gain. Now, it is the grown-up Christian that is able to do this. Someday I hope I'm there. Even though if we can just intellectually acknowledge that God loves us, he's for us, that our suffering is not without purpose, that's at least a start. If you can just start with that truth in your head, even if it's not all the way down where you can feel it, if that's a good starting place. And then fourth, endure discipline is a sign of God's love. Endure discipline is a sign of God's love. We see this in verse 6, which is actually a, a quote from the Old Testament. It says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he accepts. This is a hard truth again. 
seemingly random acts and atrocities that have gone on in the world since the beginning. And by the way, this is why I so much like the book of Job. They have a purpose. There is always a purpose to the pain of a Christian. Uh, John Piper addresses this. He says, God is not a passive observer in our lives while sinners and Satan beat us up. He rules over sinners and Satan, and they unwittingly and with no less fault or guilt fulfill his wise and loving purposes of discipline in our lives. Have you ever thought about that? Again, it's not an easy thing to understand. I'm not sure we can fully understand this. It's something that we take on faith and trust, that this is God's mode of operation, that even the most evil of beings, these these demons and demonic people are players on the stage that God has set and are ultimately serving his purposes in your life and mine. And this discipline is a sign of God's love. The horrible things that happen, things that we would never wish on ourselves or anybody else. No one wants to endure pain and suffering. It is God's discipline and not random or purposeless and then fifth endure discipline because it produces peace and righteousness it produces peace and righteousness look at verse 11 it says now all discipline seems painful at the time not joyful but later it produces the fruit of peace and righteousness for those trained by it ask any marathoner ask anyone who has worked hard to be able to endure over large periods, over long periods of time, running or, or whatever it may be. And they'll tell you, there's no pain, no gain. It just seems like on many stages in the world, this is how it works. We all want peace. I know I do. When I lay my head down at night, when I'm struggling, I want to feel peace. The difficulty you go through is a pathway to that peace. This is what God has ordained. Whatever you may have to endure, have endured as a child. You as a believer, this was in God's providence to ultimately bring you peace. And again, I do not want to speak tritely about the difficulties that many of you have endured. I know that they are severe and heavy. But it is worth the struggle. So discipline is something God has called us to. And we see these reasons for enduring discipline. And as hard as it is, believe me, the alternative to trying to walk away from God, thinking it's going to be easier down another path, will ultimately just bring you more pain. When Job was at the peak of his suffering, back in the Old Testament, this wonderful character that we're told about, his wife looked at him and said, would you just curse God and die? But what did he say? You foolish woman. I dare not say that to God. I wouldn't have chosen this path. But though he slay me, I trust him. Because being a follower of Christ is not an easy path to go. It's a hard path to follow. But as I see it, there is no better alternative. The only alternative is foolishness. That's the alternative. By the way, did you know that the atheists are going to have a new holiday? 
it's April 1st. April Fool's Day, because the scriptures tell us in Psalm 14, 1, it is the fool who says in his heart that there is no God. So how do I avoid this foolishness? Let's look at this last set of verses. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. At the end of that set of verses is included a man by the name of Esau. Esau and Jacob were the sons of Isaac. Esau was the oldest. He was the one that was to get the blessing from God to be the father of Israel. But he came in from hunting so hungry that he said, if I could just have something to eat, I'll give it away. So for that bowl of chili, the birthright went to his brother, Jacob. That's the picture that you have. It's a supreme act of foolishness, although I've been pretty hungry at times. I don't want to judge my friend too harshly. But it says there to strive for peace with everyone. Strive means to vigorously pursue as well as holiness. When people are treated cruelly by Christians, it pushes them away. Don't be the prickly pear that nobody wants to be around. Be careful what you decide to do and say out there. In an election year, you have ample opportunity to bite your tongue at times. To be careful about what you put out there on Facebook. I don't think it's a great place for political discourse personally. If we're prickly pears, if we're people that nobody wants to be around, we're contributing at pushing people away from Christ. And when people are pushed away from Christ, they can have this effect of taking other people with them. In Deuteronomy 29:18, it depicts someone who has turned away from God as this bitter root that's just pushing poison out all around them when they reject God. And I think Satan is always seeking to crush the faith out of anyone he can get his hands on. And the more well-known someone is, the better the target. There's actually two well-known actors in Hollywood uh, who started out with Christian roots. One of those is Brad Pitt, raised in the church, and yet he said this about his faith during an interview. He said, I found my Christian upbringing very stifling. I always had a lot of questions about the world, even in kindergarten. A big question to me was fairness. If I'd grown up in some other religion, would I get the same shot at heaven as a Christian has? When I got untethered from the comfort of religion, it wasn't a loss of faith for me. It was a discovery of self. It's very interesting what Sam said at the very beginning. Self-actualization versus Christ-actualization. We're here for Christ, not for self. I had faith that I'm capable enough to handle any situation. There's peace and understanding that I have only one life, here and now, and I'm responsible. Another actor, Hugh Jackman, you may know him. Uh, if you saw Le Mis, he was also the Wolverine in the X-Men movies, been in a ton of films. Um, he, too, was uh, the son of parents who actually converted to Christianity because of a Billy Graham crusade. But in a 2013 interview, he said this. He said, I was involved with so many things in the church. It was my social group. It was where I met girls. It was my life out of school. Then around 16 or 17, I started questioning, how come all these non-believers are going to hell? In the same interview, 
It reported that today Jackman is not particularly religious, and he says he never prays, though he believes in some form of God and afterlife. He said he meditates twice daily for 30 minutes. He said it's about quieting that part of the brain and just seeing and being. So what happens? You know what? There are hard questions in Christianity. I wish I could reconcile everything that science brings up to the scriptures. I wish I had all the answers, all the hard questions. But just because there's hard questions, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't throw out our source of truth and hope just because it's difficult sometimes. There are hard questions, but there are answers to these questions. Don't give up and don't push people away. And to close this out, I just want to say, Endure the pain of this life by trusting that God is a loving Father. God is a loving Father. You know, my wife and I are in the process of, uh, we have the privilege, actually, of raising a, a spirited young man, little boy. And by the grace of God, we have, uh, we, we've got him out of diapers. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> hey, I'm getting a clap over here on one side. <laughs> so we all went through this process, right? Uh, it's not easy. He goes back and forth sometimes. But what would you think if you saw a teenager, perfectly healthy, nothing wrong with them, but still wearing diapers? You'd say, man, there is a problem with this picture. You see, God is not willing to leave us in diapers. He is going to grow us up. He's going to use discipline to do it, not because you've done something wrong, because he loves us too much to leave us in the state that we're in. So trust that he's a loving father, that he's looking out for us. And please pray with me. Lord, we, we love and trust you. God, we don't understand the pain of this life. You are the only one who knows the answer to why. And as badly as Job, one of the answers, Lord, you said, Job, you're not going to understand it anyway. Lord, we wouldn't understand it anyway. We know that you love us, and you loved us enough to sacrifice your son for us. And I pray that as we go into this time of communion, that we would embrace fully what it means for us, that our Lord Jesus died for our sins, that he was resurrected. And this is a small picture of what's to come in a glorious moment. We'll all sit down to a wonderful marriage supper of the Lamb together in all eternity. Calm our hearts now as we partake in that holy act. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.